Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz and Caridian. We'll be picking up on page 113, looking at baptism, and we'll do a quick introduction or reintroduction right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so baptism is instituted by Christ. It has his divine command. And baptism itself then consists of the word, specifically the name of God, and then the element of water. So to baptize is to wash in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in accordance with Christ's command. Those three aspects constitute baptism. Then whose work is baptism? That's the topic to which we turn when we enter upon question 229. We're going to see in 229 through 231, is God the Father present? Is the Son of God present? Is the Holy Spirit present? And of course, they are all going to be present. We'll maybe spend a moment digging around in our Bibles to take a look at some of this. Just make sure we have that foundation laid. And the conclusion that we're going to have to come to biblically is that, well, sure, there's human hands that are actually pouring the water over the baby. There's parents that got the baby dressed into the church, and there's a whole congregation of saints gathered around. There's an organist that plays the baptismal hymn. And so while there's human participation... The work proper, the actual baptizing, the actual washing away of sins, the actual new birth in the, in the Holy Spirit, this is all, properly speaking, the work of God. He uses human beings instrumentally as means, but it's him doing the doing. So then, without further ado, question 229, is God the Father present in baptism? Answer, he certainly is present. And that not only in the mode of presence by which he is present everywhere and fills all things. Okay, well, here's a complicated uh, topic in theology we'll not enter all the way into unless you really want. And that is that we can discuss the presence of God in accordance with different modes as we see them articulated in the scriptures. So, is Jesus present everywhere, for example? Yes. Does he say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am? Yes. So that's a different mode or way of being present, a different purpose for which he is present. It's why the age-old canard of, well, I could just as easily go on Sunday morning surfing and spend time with God there as I could go to the assembly of the saints and receive the words and sacraments of Christ. They're both equal because Jesus is equally and in the same way present with me on my surfboard as he is in the divine service. Clearly not. 
And the articulation of that is in the scriptures themselves. Of course, Christ has a mode of presence where he exists everywhere. Christ has a different and special mode of presence where two or three are gathered. There he is uniquely as the shepherd of his sheep, as the pastor of his flock, to preach his law and gospel and to administer his sacraments unto us. Okay? And even that mode of presence can be distinguished from the mode of presence specific, say, to the Lord's Supper, where he takes bread and says, this is my body, and takes wine and says, this is my blood. That's even more specific, even more unique. Because where we say Jesus is is present because two or three are gathered in his name, we don't mean that then everything present with him suddenly has become his body and or his blood. You see, so he gives us uniquely in this unique and special mode, this, this bread, not all bread, this bread, this wine, not all wine, this wine, these are my body and my blood given and shed for you. And so that's even yet a different mode of presence that can be distinguished from the other modes that come to us directly from the scriptures. Does that make sense? Okay, good enough. So God is, the Father, Chemnitz writes, is present in baptism, and not only in that mode of presence in which he is present everywhere and fills all things, but in such a way that through this washing, again, remember that that's just what baptism means, he saved us according to his mercy, that being justified by his grace for Christ's sake, we might be made heirs of eternal life, through the Holy Spirit. And we'll turn in just a moment to Titus 3. Likewise, God the Father is present in baptism in such a way that in it he establishes a covenant of good conscience between himself and us through Christ. And the reference there is 1 Peter 3.21. So first, let's go to Titus 3 because this will serve us for a number of the points that Chemnitz is going to make. Titus chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 4 just to get a little bit of a run-up. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. If we had no other text on baptism but this one, we'd have everything. We really would. So just to give you a a quick little walkthrough and point out a few things, we know because Paul explicitly mentions in this section later on the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ our Savior, We know then by deduction that in verse 4 he's talking about the Father when he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, that's a reference to the Father, appeared, 
He saved us, that is, the Father saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Obviously, there's nothing we have did to merit salvation, nothing we do present tense or in the future to merit salvation. It's all his gift of grace. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, I won't spend a lot of time here, even though this is kind of the beating heart of this text, this language of washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, simply because Chemnitz is going to do that heavy lifting for us. Maybe we won't get to it this week. Maybe it'll be next week. But I'll leave that just on the table at present. It is a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Chemnitz sees that washing of regeneration as a new birth, and that would be the technical language, palingenesis, a new origin, a new genesis, a new birth. And so that being a uh, completed part of baptism, that once you're baptized, you are regenerated, you are reborn. All of that language is fair game. And then he sees the renewal of the Holy Spirit as a growth in baptism, analogous to the growth you have when, you're, when you were born to your earthly mother and you were a newborn baby and you have now grown up. And Chemnitz sees that as precisely analogous to the renewal we have in the Holy Spirit. Where, and he's going to quote Peter to that effect, where like newborn babes, we crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word that by it we may grow up into salvation. So this maturation, which is a process, Chemnitz sees specifically as flowing from this language of renewal of the Holy Spirit. Okay, more to come on that. But we already then see, zooming out, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 6, whom, that is the Holy Spirit, he, the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you can see how Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the pastor. And the Father is giving the Holy Spirit unto the Son, who then the Son pours the Holy Spirit out upon us. That's the logic and the flow. So again, whom, that's reference to the Holy Spirit, He, reference to the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. From the Father to the Son, from the Son to us, the Holy Spirit is given. Which is one of the reasons why we have no problem in the creed confessing the filioque, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Filioque means and the Son, because the Holy Spirit goes from the Father to the Son to us. And that's a reality of the procession of the Holy Spirit as he is given to us. So one of the reasons why we confess the filioque. And what is the purpose of this washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to the Son, the Son gives the Holy Spirit to us, that we might be regenerated, that we might be renewed, that we might be saved. All of that language is fair game. Verse 7 gives us the purpose clause. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. So now, don't pass by this language too quickly, because this is the language of sonship, isn't it? How do you become an heir? 
Is there anything you can do to become Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or any of these rich guys' heirs? You have to be born into their families, right? So that is the language of sonship. That's how you become an heir. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Sons, who then receive the inheritance of our father, all that he has, according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Okay, so then that rounds it out that the whole purpose of baptism and the foundation of baptism is that not that we would just, you know, go on sinning, that baptismal grace may abound, but that we would recognize what baptism is and build upon that and understand that as we've now been born anew, so we walk in newness of life. And St. Paul's going to teach us about this in Romans chapter 6. But that's really the, the aspect of baptism is in the first place a washing away of sins, at a new birth, and in the second place, then, it's a, a renewal whereby we are brought up from spiritual infancy into spiritual maturity. And there's a maturation and a devotion to good works, to mortification of the flesh, and, uh, and then um, careful devotion to good works our whole life long. And those good works increase. Okay, so far so good. Just wanted to take a minute and spend some time in the actual text of Scripture so that it's all the more convincing that you see how Chemnitz is teaching us exactly what the Scriptures themselves teach. Now, he references uh, 1 Peter 3.21 and how God establishes a covenant of good conscience between us and himself in baptism. So it would be good for us to turn very quickly. Don't want to spend... There'll be a lot of time here because this text is one you can fall into, and then it's just a text on First Peter th- or a class on First Peter three. <laughs> but First Peter three twenty one is the specific reference used. Let's see. Okay, we'll just pick up at 18, even though we can't entirely avoid the rabbit trail we might fall down. At 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Do you have a vicarious atonement there? (laughs) Absolutely. Do you have Christ... Suffering for our sins? Absolutely you do. So worth pointing out that this is a thoroughly first century teaching. And that teaching is sometimes denounced as Anselmic and much later in the history of the church. Not true. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He who is righteous suffered for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. It just couldn't be more straightforward, couldn't be more beautiful or wonderful. Christ, of course, inherent in that, in that title of Christ is he's true God and true man, so he's the mediator between God and man. That's why he can die for our sins, because he's man, and how he can cover them all, because he's God. 
That logic and rationale is even in the earliest church fathers, as it is, of course, also here in this text. Okay, and then the references here are where there's a a rabbit trail that I hope to avoid because it's not to our purposes. But the next clause, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, references to Christ, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah. Here's where, for our purposes, the text kind of clicks back on. Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So, while the waters of the flood, Genesis 6 through 9, were destructive to the wicked, they were salvific, to Noah and the seven others, eight souls in all. So water saved them, as it were. And that's the point that Peter's going to now apply to us in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to what? To the flood and to the saving of Noah and the seven others. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Just as the flood water saved Noah and seven others, baptism is the flood water that now saves you. I mean, it's just as clear as it can be. Not a removal of dirt from the body. Again, this is a washing, not like when you take a shower, but rather as what? As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look how wonderfully Chemnitz puts this when he says that the Father establishes a covenant of good conscience between himself and us through Christ. You're baptized with Christ and into Christ. And thus, it's not a washing of dirt from the body, not a clean body, but rather a clean conscience. Baptism saves you. It is an appeal to God for a clean conscience because he's washed you. And as he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that ties back into 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The fact that God receives that sacrifice from the Son is evidenced by the fact that he raises the Son. Now you are baptized with the Son and in the Son, and so you have a clean conscience before the Father. I know that's a lot of verbiage and a little bit to wrap your mind around, but it's the clear and express teaching of 1 Peter 3.21, that baptism is the means by which God saves you. And he saves you not apart from Christ Jesus, but in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. So far, so good? Now, I hesitate when I say any questions here. I'd really love if you'd avoid (laughs) the obvious and manifest ones um, that take us afield from baptism. Uh, But if you do have any questions specific to baptism or the baptismal aspects of this text. I'd, I'd be happy to answer those. I can maybe answer the other ones, but I won't be happy. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. I, I, oh, I'm sorry, I've lost the order here. Um, thanks, Barry. I know there's a number of hands here. Please. Okay. First, so I don't forget to say this, but I want to make, ask another question. I'm, what came into my mind is, can we say that we are all stillborn 
Can we say that we are all stillborn? Yeah, until baptism. Mm, I mean, sure, it works as an analogy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, I was baptized as a child. But I'm thinking of the people who didn't come to Christ until later in life. And they may actually have grown up in atheism. Mm -hmm. And their experience is different from mine. But I think of the jailer who said, what must I do? And Peter says, be baptized. Because he, he understood, he believed Christ, there was something with Christ. And so Peter says, mm-hmm. you must be baptized. Are there other scriptures that speak to that? Yeah, lots. And that okay. is, and, and that would be, I'm glad you bring that question up, because it is something we struggle with now. Um, and just it, as much as in our articulation of it. So when you find, well, what must I do or what should I do? And I, very often the, the quote-unquote Protestant answer of today is, well, just believe. Well, you're already doing it. You know? And that's just not an answer that the scriptures or the, the church has given in its 2,000-year history. The answer is always and ever be baptized. That is the beginning of uh, your life in Christ. That is the beginning. So when you talked about stillborn, uh, this is actually a, a common way that the early church spoke about it. When you are brought by God to faith through his word, whether it's your parents or friends or some evangelist or maybe you visit a church and the pastor, whatever, God converts you through his word. That's analogous to a baby being conceived. The word, the sperma of God, the seed of God has uh, has now conceived life within the ovum, within the egg, within you. And new life is conceived. Now you are in the womb. Now there's different poetic ways, theologically poetic ways of articulating this, but um, for our purposes, uh, it would go like this. When the Word has created faith in you, you're not yet born anew. You're conceived anew. You're a living being before God. If you died before baptism, you'd be saved. You're a living human being because you've been conceived by the word. But just as with our babies, we don't just hope that they're conceived and never born, but rather conception and then new birth, that's what we have in mind. That's what God has in mind. And so then the analogy is that they would, those who have been conceived by the word would then be born through baptism. That's the language. Yes, please. I'm interested in uh, this clear or good conscience. How, how do we as Christians know or confirm that we do have a clear conscience in, in the context of dull consciences, consciences which are not washed with the word of God? I mean, there yeah. are people going around thinking they're good, but they're really not in light of mm, mm. Yeah, so you have a, what afflicts us with the disease of sin is a deadening of the conscience to where, again, this manifests, as you put so well, most unbelieving people walk around in the world thinking they're good people and they don't need a savior. This is then God's twofold work is the preaching of repentance comes first. Remember the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, convicts of sin. That's the first step. So we have to be convicted of sin. 
that that false facade has to be broken down. We're not, in fact, good people. We're poor, miserable sinners. So God works that way through his law. He works repentance in us. And then through his gospel, he brings us to faith and trust in Christ Jesus as the only solution to sin, the only solution to death. So the conscience goes through a state in in a fallen human being of being deceived and thinking it's good when it's not, thinking it's well when it's sick. Remember Jesus saying, I come not for the well, but for the sick. So step one is God has to convince us that we're sick. Step two, then, he binds us to the good physician, the healer of our souls, Christ our Savior. Then the conscience actually in condemning the sinner is right, whereas before the conscience was dulled and deluded and didn't condemn the sinner, or did but only in part, and the sinner denied that. The conscience then does its good work and informed and formed by the word of God, convicts the sinner, cuts you to the heart, you're cut to the heart by God's word, what then shall we do? Be baptized and believe. And as you are baptized and believed, your conscience is righted and made good. Now, what is the basis of the good conscience? Is it any righteous deeds that you have done? No. It's what God has done for you, specifically in washing away your sins and giving you new birth. Now, that's a long roundabout way, and I'm tying in different biblical themes, but hopefully giving a full answer to this question specific to 1 Peter 3, that it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This baptism is. How so? What's the inner logic of that? That God is the one who has washed you once and for all. And so you return to him, and that's the appeal of the clean conscience, is you would say, I've sinned and I've defiled myself, but you have washed me. And that is a perpetual washing, a perpetual um, baptism. Baptism is not a one and done. It's a reality that you enter into like marriage. So you don't say, I, I was married, you know, or at least since I am married, if I said that, like, you know, if Juliana was here, oh yeah, I was married. She would take offense, even though that is technically true. I was married way back on our wedding date. But it's more true to say, not I was married, but I am married. Because it's a state one enters and then that state perpetuates. The same thing is true. You can say you were baptized or I was baptized. And that's true, but it's somewhat deceptive in the same way it would be true to say I was married. Rather, more accurate, more true, is that you are baptized. Baptism is entering into a perpetual state. And so this is what we mean when we say shorthand, remember your baptism. Baptism is that thing to which you can return and have that appeal to God for a clean conscience, knowing that he has done the doing, he has done the washing, he has washed you and entered you into this state of his perpetual washing, his perpetual uh, sonship. So what does that mean concretely? Baptism can be used in all manner, but the regular use of baptism is daily. And the regular use of baptism is making the sign of the cross every morning and every night when you rise from bed and when you return to bed in remembrance of baptism. Because as you make the sign of the cross and say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
you are reminding yourself of that foundational reality that God has given you new birth and you are now his son, his heir. He perpetually washes away your sins. He perpetually forgives you. Even if you were to go far off course and be like that son that Jesus tells of the parable who renounces his sonship and leaves the father's house and mires himself and impoverishes himself and destroys himself, when you nonetheless return to your father, he treats you as what you are, his son. And again, wraps you up in the garments of righteousness and puts sandals on your feet and the family authority, the ring back on your hand and so on and so forth, prepares the, the feast of, uh, of eternal life for you. So these are the things that, that God does. And so that's how we use baptism in a daily way. Every morning, every night, we live a baptismal reality. That's our ontology, our being now. And then, of course, in acute spiritual circumstances and crises, we can always appeal to baptism because it's something, as we're going to see, ever, all the more established, even though it's established already, especially on the basis of Titus 3, that baptism is God's work. So if God has done this thing to you, does God lie? No. Then you are washed. I mean, in a sense, whether you believe it or not, you are washed. You are cleansed. You belong to him. And that's the appeal to, unto God for a clean conscience. Does that help somewhat? I know it's a lengthy answer, but yeah. Thanks. Uh, maybe this is coming up in later things, and if so, just say so. Um, but where do people get um, what they say when they say washed in the blood mm. as opposed to water? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd, I don't really know, but here's how I would articulate it. Or, of course, we've got, um, um, how does that go? Something like um, washed in the tide that flows from his side or whatever. How does, that, how does that verse go? I just was looking at it yesterday. I can't even remember. It's terrible. Um, at the Lamb's High Feast, we sing. So part of, the, part of that reality is on the basis of the miracle that when Christ is pierced in his side, water and blood flow out distinctly. And there, is, there are two different ways that Christians have looked at that. Um, the, the minor way is the way I most frequently <laughs> teach, and that is um, that you see there images of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that which constitutes the church. What, what you tend to see more frequently is that it's water and bapti- that it, the water and blood together form the basis of baptism. So it's a because and what, what that really is is a conflation of two things. You're taking water as a washing, not of dirt from the body, but a washing away of sins. And then you're taking all those passages about Jesus' blood cleansing us. Notice the language of cleaning. Okay? So the blood of Jesus cleansing us. So the water cleans us, the blood cleanses us, and you have a conflation of those two things so that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's a very uh, uh, scriptural articulation. You remember the, um, your garments are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Heaven's laundry apparently is very different than ours, to use a little poetic license, but within the biblical frame, to be sure. 
Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So you come with your robes, we come with our robes marked up by the scarlet of our sins. And that meets with the scarlet of Jesus' blood. And somehow in heaven's laundry, what emerges then is robes washed, not red in the blood of the Lamb, but white in the blood of the Lamb. So the scarlet of our sins meets the scarlet of his blood. And what is produced is white, pure, unblemished, unstained, or spotted robes. Yes, please. Um, the end of verse uh, 18, 1 Peter 3.18, mm-hmm. um, made alive in the spirit. Um, ah, yes. It just makes me think about how um, the whole spiritual, not religious mindset, which is just so widespread and dominant in the culture and has been for some time, um, they have spiritual aspiration, mm. and but they don't necessarily see that Jesus or baptism or mm. both are necessary. They just see it as like, well, Jesus talked about the Spirit and he taught about the Spirit, mm-hmm. and so I'll I'll follow his teaching that way, and I'll just choose to be spiritual somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's usually pretty vague, but there is that spiritual aspiration. They talk about it, mm-hmm. and they seem to have it. But the distinction really is that they don't see that that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, and that it's through baptism specifically that that happens. So I, just, I was just thinking about that. The means by which we are made alive in the spirit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is, is really the key distinction there. It's not, okay, just, yeah. not just by choosing to do it, but specifically through recognizing that, that Jesus... Mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. that possible for us. Yeah, I see your point. Your point would be um, very much made clear in Romans 6, where through baptism we are buried with Christ, that we might also be raised with him. And in fact, I mean, I, why, why not go look at that real quick? Because it's just a matter of time until we do look at it. And let's go to Romans 6. So that just as Christ was put to death in the flesh and raised in the spirit, we are put to death in the flesh and raised in the spirit. We're united with him in baptism. Uh, Romans chapter 6. And while you're turning there, you know, I'll just remind you too that, that baptism isn't something to be taken in a vacuum because, you know, what is the first passage of baptism? The first passage of baptism is from Genesis chapter 1 where God creates the world and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep. Water and Spirit. That's what constitutes baptism. So immediately we know from Genesis 1 what baptism is, that baptism is the dawning of a new creation. Water is used throughout all the most magnificent works of God in the Old Testament, and that also means in the history of our world. So not only is, it, is the world created through water and the Spirit, <clears throat> but then think of how the world is destroyed. We already touched on this, through the flood. And that flood, though, is salvific to Noah and the others, and so we see then already that God uses water to destroy and to save. Um, that's all the more furthered when you look at the Exodus and what is the, the birth canal of Israel as the people of God. It's the waters of the Red Sea. 
And of course, St. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 refers to this as a baptism. They were baptized uh, through Noah in the cloud and in the sea. And so we see that already there's a kind of baptism, a new birth of God's people. Again, in, ba- in, that, in the Red Sea, you see a destruction of the enemies. You see Pharaoh and his army perishing, but you see Israel being saved. So we pass through those waters, and what's being destroyed is Satan's hold on us and enslavement to our sinful nature and our sinful passions. All these things are being destroyed while we're walking through. So if you just think about the three most major events of the scriptures as they're presented, creation, flood, exodus, they all have to do with water, and they all inform baptism. The priests of God at the tabernacle and temple would wash themselves daily. There's a daily washing that takes place in order to go into the presence of God. Naaman the Syrian is cleansed of his leprosy only by the sevenfold washing in the river Jordan. It's no mistake that the people cross through the Red Sea on dry ground and then cross through the Jordan on dry ground as God miraculously parts the waters of the river Jordan as they enter into the promised land. And then, lo and behold, where does Christian baptism have its origin? But in the same place, in the Jordan River, that they would come and be reconstituted as God's people. And so John came baptizing in the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All these things tie together, and to be sure, I've skipped over a bunch But all these things tie together and inform. It's why when John came baptizing, people weren't like, what are you doing? (laughs) What's What's your biblical proof for this? God has always worked through water to kill and save, to create anew, and to reconstitute. So then baptism in, in, that, in the larger biblical context just makes perfect sense. That, that ba- the baptism that Christ gives us would be a culmination of all of those things and a climax of all of those events. And that's exactly what you see in the scriptures. Okay, so at Romans 6, let's, let's look at this really... That's why I say we're baptized with Christ and into Christ. Both are true. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, this is just one of many problems when you say, oh, baptism is my work, my act of obedience. Really? This is something within your capability to do. You buried yourself with Christ. <laughs> you washed yourself. You gave yourself new birth. You saved yourself as God saved Noah. No. Emerging all the way through these texts, it is very clear that God is doing the doing in baptism. And so to be baptized into Christ Jesus is to be so joined with him that his death is your death, his resurrection is your Resurrection. So again, the key to hang on to right off the bat, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were so united with him 
into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, let's just let Paul keep articulating it. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, if I were to just put that in my own words, you were united with Christ in baptism in such a way that you were buried with him already. You've already died. And if you've been buried with him, then you will certainly also be resurrected with him. What's already occurred is a spiritual resurrection. What's not yet to occur is the bodily resurrection. So again, just look quickly at verse 4 and 5, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the spiritual resurrection that we have right now. And that's Paul's whole point. I mean, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How should we go forward? To walk in newness of life. Because we've already been raised with Christ spiritually. That's the spiritual resurrection. Then look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at how that's a future. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. The body is going to follow. You have already experienced the resurrection of your soul. What's going to happen is your body's going to follow and be resurrected, raised, just as his body is resurrected and raised. Okay, and then the point is obvious that we're baptized and we're made new not to live in sin and just bathe in God's forgiveness. That's, that, that's an abomination. But rather that being born anew, we would... Reckon ourselves to be what we are, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so daily exercise in drowning the old Adam, daily exercise in the new man being raised up and growing stronger. That's exactly what Luther teaches us in the small catechism on this point, if you recall. Okay, so baptism is the way by which God unites us to Christ and conforms us into his image in such a way that we are continually um, crucified and continually raised with him. And the dominant way that Paul speaks, of course, is that sin is done with. The new has come. That you walk in newness of life. That you reckon yourself and your sinful being as already being dead. No longer having power to enslave or possess you. Rather, you're now a slave of God, his possession, and you're alive to him in Christ Jesus. All right, so maybe that suffices. Any questions here on Romans 6? 
So you see how thoroughgoing then this, this biblical foundation of baptism is. Returning to Chemnitz at 2.29, then, is God the Father present in baptism? Of course he is. And as we saw in Titus 3, he's making us heirs of eternal life through the Holy Spirit. That is, he's making us his sons. And then in reference to 1 Peter 3, um, the Father is establishing a covenant with us in baptism that we might have a good conscience before him through Christ. Okay, on to question 230. Is the Son of God present in baptism? So is the Father present? Yes. Is the Son present? Yes. Chemnitz writes, Paul clearly affirms that saying, um, that saying in very beautiful words, Ephesians 5, 25-26, Christ gave himself for the church. Chemnitz here paraphrasing Ephesians. Christ gave himself for the church that he might sanctify it, make it holy, cleansing it with the washing of water by the word. What on earth is the washing of water by the word if not baptism? And there you can see, again, the connection of water and word. Those two elements that constitute baptism. Kenneth continues, likewise, he says that we are baptized into the death of Christ, Romans 6. That's what we were just looking at. And into the resurrection of Christ, 1 Peter 3.21. Although Romans 6 says the same, they both confess that point. We're baptized into his death and his resurrection. In fact, Chemnitz writes, in baptism we put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. And this is what is said in Acts, to be baptized in the name of Christ. All right, to be baptized with him and into him, Christ is most certainly present as the scriptures teach. 2.31, is the Holy Spirit also present in baptism? Kenneth's answers, we are born again of water and the Spirit, that we might enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you'll see there Titus 3, which we already covered, but you'll also see John 3. Let's look at John 3 very quickly, because this is a foundational baptismal text. John 3, of course, our Lord is speaking with Nicodemus who we have reason to believe that by the end of the Passion, Nicodemus has been converted, certainly that by then, maybe earlier. John chapter 3, and again, we'll try to stay on course here because there are a lot of ways we can get off course and go down rabbit trails, our purpose being baptism. We'll try to stick on that narrow path. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And born again is probably more accurately born from above. It's this Greek word anothen that can mean either, but in John's gospel and in this context, almost certainly born from above. It doesn't matter for our purposes. I'm just pointing it out for accuracy's sake. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you have to have new birth. Okay, well, Nicodemus is obviously puzzled by this. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Great big mulligan. 
Jesus answered, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless one is born, now look at the parallel, of water and the Spirit. So what does it mean to be born again or born from above? It means to be born of water and the Spirit. And because we're not biblically illiterate, we know what Jesus is referencing back in Genesis 1, where there's water and Spirit. It's a new creation. This man has to become a new man, a new creation. So born again or born from above is exactly parallel to born of water and the Spirit. And unless one is born of water and the Spirit, Jesus says, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the only way to see the kingdom of God or perceive it, the only way to enter the kingdom of God or become part of it, is through this birth from above, this birth of water and the Spirit. Verse 6 clarifies the whole thing. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you're born of your earthly mother, that's it. You're earthly, you're fleshly. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Spirit is giving us a new birth through water. Water and Spirit comprise this new birth from above, and thus we are no longer merely flesh of the first birth, but we are now spirit of the second birth. That's why the Lutheran confessions say there's a huge, great, enormous difference between the baptized and the unbaptized, because the unbaptized are, are just flesh. That which is flesh is flesh. But the baptized are spiritual. That which is spirit is spirit. Like two different categories of human beings. Really two different species entirely. Um, sinners and saints. Okay. And you can see that articulated here from the words of our Lord himself. Okay, so is the Holy Spirit present in baptism? Of course. He's giving us this new birth. So Chemnitz writes, We were born again of water and the Spirit that we might enter into the kingdom of God. We might see and perceive it, that we might enter into it. John 3. Chemnitz then continues, we're right in question 231. And on this basis, people are to be instructed and taught so that they do not consider and regard baptism as only a human work, but as the work of God. So that was the underlinable moment for me. Um, if that's your way, you might consider underlining this. Because the whole point then, so on the basis of these texts, we do not consider and regard baptism as only a human work. I mean, to be sure, there's human instruments. But as the work of God, namely, that in it the entire Holy Trinity is present and deals with the poor sinner through that outward ministry so that he cleanses him from sins, delivers him from death, Satan and eternal damnation, and instead gives him righteousness and eternal salvation. Okay, so I think that paragraph, wonderfully, beautifully clear and joyful restatement of these biblical teachings. Okay, yes, I see a hand up front. It just hit me. It's like being self-aware. In decisional theology, Mm -hmm. You're actually saying, well, I put myself together. That's how I was born. Mm, yeah, you know, it's right. It's so ridiculous. But we're not... Anyway, I just, it just hit me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God's work. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all God's doing. God works through means. You know, to give you fleshly birth, he works through the means of mother and father. But it's he who does life. Uh, he who gives life. And... Um, spiritually, yeah, he works through the office of the ministry in the church, but it's he who affects and gives that 
new and eternal life. Mm-hmm. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't create ourselves uh, in terms of the flesh, and we didn't create ourselves in terms of the spirit. Exactly right. I saw an illustration the other day. I hope I can describe it. Picture of a baby mm-hmm. in the womb. Mm-hmm. And explained that the baby is growing in the womb, conceived in the womb, growing in the womb, life-giving from the mother through the umbilical cord, Mm. will be delivered into this world. Mm -hmm. In comparison, then, that when Christ comes in and lives in us, Mm -hmm. conception takes place there, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit nourishes us, Mm -hmm. and we're delivered finally into the new heavens and earth. Yes, great. Really helpful. Absolutely. So the shame, or the frame, sorry, the frame shifts a little bit from what we were talking about before. This is a wonderful articulation that you just made, and and a a scriptural basis for it would be in Romans 8, where the creation is groaning as if in a woman in travail in childbirth. Okay, so the frame shifts now, and we would conceive of this entire life as one of gestation. Because the whole creation is groaning in travail as a mother giving birth. And when she gives birth, as Romans 8 teaches, it's the revelation, the unveiling of the sons of God. So this whole creation then is lived in utero. There's so much wonderful and delightful hope there. Because however great one becomes in this life, you're just like a fetus relative to what you will be at the revelation of the sons of God and the new birth into the new creation. So on this basis, too, some of the early church fathers, and and again, we're just, you can see the way these frames shift, um, even scripturally, but they would view death as birth. They would view baptism as really your conception. You're being made alive. And they would talk about the stillborn as those who have been baptized but died outside of the faith. They were conceived and yet died before actually being born. So the frame here, I think it's Ignatius that really popularizes this, especially when he's on his way to his martyrdom. He's got this great line because all the Christians are clamoring to spare him and they can pull strings and get him off the hook. And he's got this wonderful line where he says, let me die that I may truly live. So, and, and from this, then you can connect some of the other sayings of the church father's frame of Death being, in fact, birth and being coming out of the, the tribulation and being born. And, and it is a wonderful biblical way of thinking. Remember, Jesus, we were just coming out of Christmas, he was conceived in the womb of a virgin. And so if he's going to be the firstborn from the dead, he needs a virgin tomb. And that's exactly what he gets. He gets a tomb in which no man had ever been laid. So a virgin womb and a virgin tomb. And what does Paul say? That we are baptized into Christ and thus buried with him. Now, think, that's literal language. His virgin tomb has become your virgin tomb, and from it he came forth, making that virgin tomb the ultimate virgin womb. So we then also are buried with him that we might come forth from that tomb become the womb. And he is the firstborn of the dead, which means there are other born, second, third, fourth, and so on. Other siblings who are born out of 
the virgin tomb that has now become an everlasting womb, and we receive that new birth never to die again. And that's the language of, of Paul in Romans 6, too, isn't it? That, we would, that he would never die again, that we would never die again. We're, being, we're becoming conquerors of death. In fact, death has not just been nullified by Christ, but it's been turned into its exact opposite, where death used to be the end of life, now it is the source of life. That's how thoroughly he transforms death. So death is a new birth in that frame then, and we look forward to that. It's where the day, you know, and this is really an optimistic way. I mean, optimism is the wrong word. Hope. This is the hope we should have in us. As we're pressing toward death, we're not pressing toward an end. We're not pressing toward a, oh, it all collapses, it all becomes nothing. That would be the complete opposite way Christians should conceive of death. We're progressing toward the culmination the graduation, the birth, the beginning. We haven't even yet begun to live. We haven't even yet begun to become what God has in mind for us to become and be. Death is the, is the greatest positive. So you let, that, you let that life and that hope fill you so that as you're going through the drudgery of this life and the outward man is perishing, even so the inward man is being renewed day by day. And the inward man is leaning forward and leaning into death and can't wait, in a sense, to crawl into that grave because that simply means coming right out the other side. Um, The difference between an acorn and an oak tree, the difference between a seed that goes in and a great fruitful plant that comes out, the difference between a fetus and a fully matured human being, that's we are longing for that new birth and longing for that culmination of God's creation. So death then is utterly transformed into a wonderful thing and a thing that colors our whole lives as, I'm going to be faithful now because the time is short. I'm going to be faithful in suffering because the finish line is right there. I'm going to endure the darkness with hope and joy because the light, the everlasting light, is right in front of me. I'm going to lean into death because it's leaning into that everlasting joy and light and the culmination of hope. So, you know, it just transforms the way we look at death. It's like Americans have a really unchristian ethos of like, oh, I just hope it doesn't hurt. Hope it happens in my sleep. Who cares about any of that crap? I mean, seriously, it's like like ridiculous. Um, how, How did the saints and martyrs uh, undergo you know, tortures and horrors and everything because they knew, they knew in the depths of their soul the light and joy that was set before them. And that light and joy penetrated their whole being to where it's like, hey, I'm only going to die once. May as well lean into it. May as well get after it. May as well enjoy it because this very thing that seems to be conquering me is in fact conquered by my Lord and will be conquered by me through his power. He's going to put the serpent under our heels and he's going to put death under our feet and all that we now account as shame and weakness will in a blink of an eye be glory and strength. So just some thoughts there uh, to conclude our class where baptism leads us and what God has in mind in this great and wonderful gift. Next week, then, we'll pick up by talking a little more about the efficacy and power and benefit of baptism, uh, question 232. The Lord be with you.